Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. So if you imagine the ball there, for it doesn't then sit in this deep landscape. It rolls about a bit. Okay, like a marble in a, in a cereal bowl. Okay, and that's what performance is like. Because the 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 width and depth of that well needs to reflect the variability that you see during competition and match play. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to The Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a performance coach, content creator and founder of The Coaches Network. And today's episode is going to be part of our how-to series, where we discuss a range of topics and with the help of our guests, break down some actionable how-to steps to help you reach your full potential. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name is Coach Yes, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. My guest today is Professor Mark Williams um, of the University of Utah. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning. Yes, great. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to come on your podcast this morning. No problem. Pleasure's all mine. Uh, Mark, I just want to start off, you know, for those that don't know and aren't maybe potentially familiar with your work, mm-hmm. uh, would you mind just giving a bit of a background around who you are and what you do exactly? Sure. Uh, I mean, my background is um, mostly as an academic. I did a sports science degree um, many, many years ago and then a PhD in movement science at the University of Liverpool. And then I've had varying, various academic jobs over the years. I was worked at the University of Liverpool for a while. I was at Liverpool John Moores University for 20 odd years where I led all their uh, science and football programmes. And then I've worked at the University of Sydney and uh, Brunel University London. And then currently I'm um, at the University of Utah. So my interests, sort of expertise-wise, really focus on issues around talent identification, talent development, uh, optimizing skill learning, the development of expertise, and effective practice and coaching. And uh, in addition to... My academic work, uh, I also do a fair amount of coach education work for um, maybe around half a dozen to a dozen various football associations around the globe. So I typically deliver on A and Pro licenses uh, across a range of different areas. Uh, Some that I've mentioned there and also another area of interest of mine is um, the development of game intelligence. Mm. So, you you know, Thank you for that brief uh, rundown of, uh, of your background. Uh, just, mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of bring us to today's topic. Then, so you talked there about some of the areas of expertise, but today's topic is going to be mainly focused around how to deliver an effective practice session. But you know, just before we go into that, mm-hmm. I want you to uh, speak to your perspective of what effective coaching or effective practice looks like. Mm. Well, I guess. Ultimately, we probably have to differentiate here between um, 
short and long-term development. And I guess certainly if you're working with players at the younger end age, of, sorry, younger end of the age spectrum, then really the focus is about long-term learning and development in those kids rather than necessarily about short-term performance and and results. And actually that, that differentiation between uh, performance and learning is quite critical actually to to the process of effective coaching. Um, and I'm sure as you ask me more questions this morning, that, that will become evident. So I'll, I'll sort of save the catch line for now, but mm. suffice to say that um, I guess the measure of success leads to the long-term development of, uh, of the player, both in terms of developing the necessary technical, tactical, psychological skills, etc. It obviously depends also at the level that you're working. I mean, there'll be a lot of coaches out there who are working with kids at grassroots level. And maybe the aims there, in essence, are more about the child enjoying the sport and developing, uh, you know, a set of skills that will last them a lifetime and keep them physically active. And then there are probably other coaches that are working at the elite end, where, of course, ultimately, the aim there is to try and progress the kids through to uh, the professional level. And just to kind of, you know, delve deeper into something you just touched on there, it's obviously performance versus learning. Mm -hmm. Is it possible to get the two at the same time? And what would you identify as a key uh, variables and the differences between them? Well, in terms of the science side of it, um, so when you take a particular coaching session, uh, let's say you've got, I don't know, 16, 12-year-old girls, for instance, then what you actually see in that coaching session is their performance, that is their observed behavior. Mm. And now the, the problem is we can't actually observe learning. Uh, we can only infer learning uh, over a prolonged period of time. So technically we need to be able to see that any change in performance in that coaching session is retained over subsequent practice sessions. Uh, and that secondly the change in performance would transfer both to other practice sessions and, of course, ultimately to competition and match play. And, um, and the reason really why this differentiation between performance and learning uh, is important is that, um, you know, the different instructional variables impact these two factors differently. So, for instance, the research evidence would suggest that if I want good performance in a particular coaching session, then typically it helps if I provide lots of instruction, demonstrate often, do specific and block practice of skills through drill and grid-based practices, and offer uh, lots of feedback. So typically when the coach is very hands-on in those kinds of instructional settings, then performance in the session is actually good. But the problem is, is that whilst performance is good, it doesn't necessarily mean that those skills are then retained over time or they transfer to match playing competition. <clears throat> and rather paradoxically, you know, the research evidence suggests that maybe the reverse conditions actually might be better in promoting retention, transfer and long term learning. And that is, of course, 
you know, what is the least amount of instruction that I need to provide these kids so that they can begin to practice the skill? Um, uh, is the nature of the practice dynamic and variable in that it reflects the typical demands of competition, which not only includes sort of technical and tactical issues, but also would include aspects of stress like fatigue and anxiety, for instance. And then again, what is the least amount of instruction that I need to provide the kid uh, so that he or she can begin to learn independently? So I guess to some degree, the latter approach is a lot more hands-off, less coach-driven, but very much coach-directed. It doesn't imply that the role of the coach becomes redundant. It just means that the role of the coach becomes different. And rather than the coach being the conveyor of all knowledge, uh, and then being tasked with the role of conveying all that knowledge information to the learner. It's more about facilitating or acting as a catalyst so that the learner can begin to learn more independently. Um, uh, but I suppose coming back to your original question, I mean, it's a difficult, well, there are at least two difficult challenges for the coaching for coaches here, isn't there? I mean, firstly, what you see is not always what you get, therefore, in so much as what you might see good performance in training, which therefore might confer the suggestion that there's a lot of learning taking place. That may not necessarily be the case if those skills aren't retained and don't transfer. Whereas, of course, you could also look at it the other way. If if, uh, performance in training is a little bit chaotic, and uh, it doesn't quite turn out like the recipe books, so to speak. It doesn't mean that there isn't any learning taking place and that that practice won't lead to the development of skills that are retained over time and actually transfer. So it's hard for the coach because he or she cannot necessarily see learning and how that's being impacted during the actual coaching session. And then I suppose the second biggest challenge for the coach here is you know, this balance between performance and learning uh, in the sense that, yes, when you talk about a long-term development process, then clearly the focus must mostly be on learning. But at the same time, you know, there might be a time where performance becomes important, where, for instance, you don't want kids to have low levels of confidence um, or where you're preparing kids for a match that might be relatively important So, you know, the coach has to always be aware of getting the balance right between the focus on short-term performance embedded within this broader structure around the focus on long-term learning. Mm. I just want to take you back to a couple of things that you touched on there. Obviously, Mm -hmm. you know, initially that that approach of, you know, that hands-off approach element. Now, a lot of coaches could look at that and think, well, that's not coaching. Uh, I think one of the challenges that you have sometimes in some environments is uh, when parents want to have a say and they, you know, they often identify that as not coaching too. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In that process, would you mind just maybe going into a bit more depth around how that looks practically? Because I think some people could, you know, could definitely take, you know, if you, if you imply that it's a hands-off approach, it's almost sit back and watch and not really... Uh, get involved in you know traditionally a lot of people would say coaching is very much coach directed as you said mm. but mm. it's also quite centered 
Yeah. Um, you know, essentially the path that you're looking at and the perspective that you're coming from it is much more a player-centered approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but rightly so, like as you touched on, it's not necessarily co- not coach-driven or coach-directed either. Mm-hmm. Um, just coach maybe putting the needs of the individuals mm-hmm. at the front of everything that's happening. So would you mind just going into a bit of detail or more detail around that handful approach and what that could practically look like and maybe speak to how important how that would have an impact on the intervention strategies and uh, methods of the coach themselves. Mm. Sure. Um, I mean, there is a lot of evidence to start with, for instance, that obviously highlights the benefits of street football in the development of elite players. And I guess typically their environments where uh, there is limited instruction, typically the kids recreate situations that they see during match play and relatively there's relatively little opportunity for augmented feedback at least from a coach there's obviously intrinsic feedback from the players judgments of the things that are going on um but i guess what one of the challenges here to some degree or i think actually one of those let me rephrase it's like one of the strongest rules of science actually is the concept of specificity of practice and what this means in essence is that your training environment your practice environment must mimic the demands of ultimate match play as best as possible Um, so coming back to your question around uh, sort of more hands-off approaches to instruction and what that means uh, no it doesn't mean that that um coaches just throw a ball to the group of kids and just say, go on and play and play street football. Uh, although there might be some benefits to that in the sense, as I said, they probably will create situations that match uh, the match play scenarios and may learn from it. But in essence, what um, the concept of manipulating constraints involves, for instance, is, is the notion that the role of the coach is about shaping and molding the learning environment such that the player has the opportunity to um, develop skills independently. And to some degree, actually, it makes the role of the coach much harder because I think the coach needs a very uh, detailed and sophisticated knowledge about the game and what happens when you uh, change certain conditions. So conditions might involve things like the size of the practice area, uh, you know, whether it's two-touch or three-touch. Um, uh, so there's a range of different constraints that you can use to kind of mould the environment. But I suppose that a fundamental of the notion is to um, for the game to essentially be the teacher. But the role of the coach, therefore, is to shape the game such that the game forces or constrains the learners to practice the skills that the coach thinks are important for their development. So there is an overriding constraint to the coaching process, even in the constraints-based approach, and it's not a total free-play environment. Uh, So the coach remains in charge of the session and in shaping and moulding the experiences that the players get through that session. But, but you know, it's a lot harder, as I said. It's, you can't go to, um, you know, your basic book of 100 football drills and just pull out a drill. It's a case of a lot of coaching through 
small-sided games-related re- situations that better reflect the demands of competition and then shaping and moulding various in- constraints, including the provision of instruction in those environments, such that you're compelling players to play and develop in a certain way. So it's more of a shaping process, if you like. Mm. And just kind of on, on that, then, you know, it, it, as part of the interventions themselves and obviously checking that learning and checking the understanding mm. of the players, it's, as you quite rightly said, you know, it might not be uh, an, a simple process in terms, it might not be an instant process where you can just say, yep, they've got it now. Uh, it might take some time of, you know, to actually see it uh, unravel and, I guess, demonstrate itself through actual live practice. Now, mm. in the build-up to that, though, um, along the way, in what ways uh, would you suggest that coaches can go about maybe checking the understanding of the players to ensure they're on the right track? And even if they're not necessarily able to fully implement the uh, subsequent actions or tactical elements yet, but they do have a grasp and understanding of it. Um, is there, you know, is there a particular line of questioning that you maybe want to go down, or a, a formula you potentially follow? Um, there's never, there's never a formula, I guess, or there's never a recipe uh, for coaching. There are different types of ingredients that might be relevant, but I, I do think it's in, it helps to engage the learner in the process, so maybe to explain to the players what the aim of the coaching session is and what it is you're trying to achieve, and to continually try and test their understanding. Um, sometimes that will be implicit in what you see uh, during practice in terms of whether they're getting the gist of what you want them to do. Other times, of course, you could, you could prompt them. You could um, uh, ask them what they think's going right or what they think's going wrong and what they might do differently next time. So most of the research actually highlights quite strongly that it is better to engage the learner cognitively in the process of instruction and learning uh, and again this is this is all part of the notion of empowering them to take some responsibility for their own learning and to be and to work with the coach as part of an integrated process as opposed to a very hands-on top-down approach to coaching uh, i mean ultimately i guess whatever level you're coaching at, you want to develop players that are creative and adaptive. And uh, if we're overly prescriptive in the manner in which we coach, both through providing too much feedback and instruction and an overemphasis on structured and rigid training conditions, then it's not going to promote that same kind of adaptive behavior. So in the literature and the expertise literature, they differentiate between adaptive and routine expertise. And routine experts, I guess, can solve most problems most of the time, whereas adaptive experts mm-hmm. are able to solve all problems all the time. So maybe you have to think about what type of coaching environment develops routine expertise, or more importantly, uh, you know, how does that environment need to be different if you want to develop adaptive experts? So just on that, then, you know, you talk about routine experts and adaptive experts. Mm. It, some people would say that, you know, the adaptive expert element is, is great, you know, but to an extent, does someone become a jack of all trades and not really a specialist, a specialist in one? What would you say to that? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure whether that those two are necessarily linked to that in the sense, um, uh, you know, whatever position you play, for instance, whether you're a, a, a defender, a midfield player, a striker, then the ability to be adaptive and to be able to solve unusual problems that you haven't come across again are important for all those roles. I mean, you could probably say that creativity, I guess, as a construct is more important in offensive players uh, of course, whereas in contrast, defenders try and maintain structure and predictability about patterns of play, whereas in contrast, offensive players try and create uncertainty, which is all part of the part of the creative process, I guess. But um, uh, you know, I, I mean, ultimately, let me make a very broad point here, in essence, in that, uh, and I probably make this point quite often when I do deliver coach education courses, actually, in that. Uh, you know, there isn't a, a recipe book to coaching, so to speak. And um, it's not my job to tell people how to coach, so to speak. Uh, I guess my role as an academic coach, educator, scientist is to enhance the professional knowledge of coaches, to tell them what the science says about how people learn and what types of instruction and what types of practice sessions seem to create to optimal learning environments. Uh, clearly, the coach then has to use a lot of his or her craft knowledge to decide how they then apply those concepts and principles into their day-to-day -day practice. Um, and maybe that's a challenge for coaches, and maybe it's something that um, they don't get enough support on, actually, through the coach education process. Um, I mean, an analogy that I've used several times is the concept that I think coach education courses, uh, referring to a golf analogy here, it is, after all, the first day of the U.S. Masters. But, you know, coach education courses are very good at teaching coaches how to play a shot with each club in the golf bag. But yeah. they don't necessarily teach them how to play around the golf. Um, so maybe one of the things I might suggest is there needs to be more uh, continuing professional development of coaches uh, around a lot of more sharing of ideas, not just amongst coaches, but also between, I guess, people with a background like myself in skill acquisition and those with a coaching background about both the science behind it and how some of those scientific principles may or may not transfer to how it impacts on practice on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and I think historically there has certainly been somewhat of a what you might call a theory to practice divide here. Although with the greatest respects, I think that divide has narrowed over the last decade or so where coaches now seem to be much better informed about some of this science. And I guess there probably has been a cultural shift away from very prescriptive approaches to coaching and this over-reliance on drill and grid practices towards, um, you know, more hands-off and less prescriptive approaches to, to coaching. Mm. And I, think, I, feel, I certainly agree with you. I think a, there is a massive quality shift in that respect. Why, why do you think, in, you know, in, I guess in some cases, you know, there, there's a lot of resistance to that hands-off approach because I feel like it's almost... Do you think it's more down to the uncomfortable, uncomfortable situation that coach maybe feels himself in, or maybe not understanding sometimes uh, what that process should look like because it is to some extent a bit unpredictable in terms of what the players are actually going to take away from it. Um, and you know, off the, you know, kind of off the back of that, 
in terms of I guess designing practices are there certain variables that you might look to consider within that um mm. Mm. Well, I mean, there are there are probably certainly some constraining factors. Uh, not least, I guess, is is the cultural expectation, certainly amongst parents, that a good coach is one who's loud and is mm. always giving feedback and instruction and is very much in control of the session. So there's an element or a need to better educated coaches, or sorry, parents in that regard about what constitutes effective coaching behaviours. Um, I think there's probably a challenge among coaches as well. I mean, having coached a fair bit myself in my younger years, I suppose as a coach, there's a tendency, uh, or maybe it was just my tendency, but to keep control over the session. And by one way of putting control on the session, of course, is to put structure into it. And then, so that there's a, there's a sense of reassurance that because performance in practice looks okay that the kids must be learning but as i said that's a little bit of a fallacy in the sense that you need an element of unpredictability and and chaos because that's what the game is like so you know it involves the coaches having maybe a higher level of confidence such that they understand the fact that if things don't quite go perfectly as they might have envisaged uh, in the practice session then that's okay that they might still be learning and long-term player development that's that's occurring. Um, and I think thirdly, uh, you know, as I said, it's it's probably relatively easy to go to a coaching book, isn't it, and pull out three or four drills that you can deliver in a particular coaching session. But ultimately the question comes down, are those drills what the players need? And again, if you're engaging in any practice session, uh, you know, you may be constantly making changes to that practice session based on what you see or how you see the players are adapting to that session. So whilst, let me clarify what I mean, whilst I'm not saying you shouldn't go out without some plan, of course, when you go out and deliver a coaching session, you need to have um, some perspective of what you're trying to achieve in that particular session. But at the same time, you know, there is an element of dynamism to coaching as well. And and sometimes you might change a constraint, field dimensions, put different conditions on practice because you think that will help the players at that time. Um, so there's almost like a higher level of, um, well, almost coaching intelligence or game intelligence that's involved. Uh, and it requires you to be a lot more adaptive. So that's a lot harder and a lot more stressful for coaches, I guess, when dealing with players. Mm. You know, just on, on that, you know, you talk, you talk there about, you know, having to constrain the practice in different ways. Mm. And I'm interested to know, obviously, you know, we're going to be looking at really how to design them, uh, and uh, what effective practice looks like and whatnot. However, in the build-up to that, is there certain considerations that you're going to make um, in the preparation for that? So something that I've, I guess, over the, my years of experience and working uh, with youth players or just players in general, I've come up with a formula of my own in that, you know, it's, it's almost, you know, it's quite reassuring, I guess, listening to some of the points that you're making, essentially that, you know, it's, you know it's something that needs to be game-related. Mm. Do, do the situations in the practice mirror those that, are, you know, the players are expected to, you know, be faced within the game context? Mm. Um so that they're actually getting the best opportunity to kind of 
recognise those situations when they do get out on the pitch on in a game context. Mm. Um, you know, small sided games is obviously great as well, and you can you can adapt those and vary those in different ways. Mm. Um, you know, you you mentioned the phrase earlier about the game being the teacher, and obviously you're not literally being the teacher. However, you know that 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 phrase is often, uh, you know, I I, I met with, met with resistance on that phrase at times in the past because um, I feel like yes, the game could be the teacher, but I think the message can be easily lost in that. Similar to when we're talking about hands off approach, coaches could assume that well, I can just kind of sit back and just let them crack on with it because the game's going to teach them what to do. Yeah, I think I think what I mean by um, the game the game yeah. being a teacher is the concept of specificity. So, in yeah. other words, as I said before, the research evidence is quite strong that that we are a product of our environment. So, ultimately, mm. practice does need to look and feel like. The competitive situation so specificity is the strongest rule of science so but that's your starting point it doesn't mean of course that you can't then as a coach shape and change that game so that the adaptations that are occurring are um, unique to the set of players that that you have i mean let, let me before we go on to any specifics let, let me sort of highlight I think what are um, some of the main challenges for coaches here? I mean, the first point, as I've highlighted, is this difficulty because you cannot actually observe learning. Uh, so this difference between performance and learning is a real challenge for the coaches. You don't see, you know, you don't see what you get, so you don't get what you see, rather. So that's the first point. The, the second point, which we've not really touched upon again, actually, is um, and I should plug my new book at this point, probably. I have a book out called The Best, How Elite Athletes mm. Are Made. It's a popular science book. It's my first venture into popular science, actually written by Tim Wigmore, uh, a journalist uh, from the Daily Telegraph. And in the last section, we do dig into some of these principles in, in, in quite a bit of depth. So there is a chapter in there that talks about uh, uh, less prescriptive, more hands-off, approaches to instructions and the benefits of them but there's also a chapter in there that focuses on deliberate practice so the concept of deliberate practice is that um, uh, practice is unique to the needs of the individual uh, in so much that um, you know it's purposeful specific specific practice with the intention of improving some aspect of performance in a player so the other challenge that coaches have i think is that when you're working with groups of 16 players then the the practice that they're engaging in may be creating a deliberate practice opportunity for some of the players but not for all of the players Mm. Uh, so therefore in the concept of deliberate practice those players are being challenged so the practice is what we may term the challenge point which is stressing the system so that the necessary adaptations are occur. But for other players, it may just be maintenance training. Now, that's a, that's when yeah. you're working with large groups of players, that is a big, big problem. You know, how do you make every minute of every practice session, every player's deliberate practice is difficult, coupled with the fact that you, you can't see whether learning is taking place or not. Uh, that's certainly two of the biggest challenges uh, and then the third challenge is to ensure specificity in, in the sense that maybe the first thing I always say, you know, if you happen to be observing a coaching session, uh, 
no matter uh, what sport it is, the first question should be, well, does it look like the game in all its aspects mm. uh, and not just an isolated component of the game, which doesn't adequately replicate the demands? So there are three big challenges there that I think whatever the coach delivers in a session that he or she needs to reflect on um, and decide how they're going to take those into account. That, point, yeah, sorry. Um, that last point that you made there about, you know, does it look like the mm. game? I think it's worth adding a follow-up on that in that. Does it look like the game at the stage and format that the players that you're working with are involved in? So, yeah. you know, many, many coaches potentially, they might work in a 5v5 format or a 7v7 format or a 9v9 format. And whether that be with younger players or whatnot, however, you still get it so often, you know, similar to yourself and I work in the coaches, you're coaching faculty mm. role across some of the, the FA mm. courses. And I still find, especially coaches working with younger players, mm. more specifically in foundation phases like 9, 10, 11 mm. and under, still trying to almost replicate and mirror situations which might occur on you know on a Premier League yeah. and it's like well the game is a completely different game yes they're still playing football the actual demands of the game and the, the, the you know the, the, the passages of play and the types of actions and mm. uh, things that occur in the game are completely different or to an extent anyway mm. Mm. Um, yeah so I just wanted to kind of be high and kind of emphasise on that point more specifically that if coaches are looking to maybe go around the path of designing game related practices it should be the game that they players are intending to play in, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, personally, I think that uh, that is a great question. Uh, and it's one that I, I did talk to the Premier League about, actually, probably about a decade or so now ago. But um, it really digs into the concept of what is specificity, isn't it? And mm. what we don't have is certainly a lot of scientific data on this issue. I mean, the interesting question or what the project that was proposed to the Premier League, for instance, is, is the concept of looking at and trying to quantify what games look like at each stage of development. You know, so what does an under eights, under tens, under twelves, under fourteens, under sixteen games look like uh, in terms of its technical and tactical, even its physical, physiological demands? And then before that or inclusive of that what does practice look like at each age group in the sense of um, you know this if this is what the under eight game looks like then what should practice look like at under seven and and what i don't know the answer to actually and, and we as i said we didn't go forward with the project and collect the data is what truly is the best form of specificity here in the sense that should practice at under sevens be specific to what matches look like at under eights? Should practice at under sevens look like what matches look like at under tens, twelves, fourteens, or the adult age group? I mean, yes, there are varying levels of specificity there, and all are obviously embedded into the development cycle. I mean, there's no doubt that an under-six game won't look like a Premier League game, for sure, although clearly there might be some facets of it that are, that are similar. So I think probably, whilst heavily endorsing the importance of specificity, I suppose what I'm also saying is that more research is needed to better understand, well, what do we mean by specificity at each stage of development? 
And to what extent should specificity be linked to the particular age group of the player? That is, under eights practice looks like under eights matches. Or to what extent are we setting our boundaries for specificity at older age groups? And that reflects maybe the style of play that you might expect these players to be playing 10 years down the road. Mm. I think you you talk there about the specificity and you know just to kind of touch on there you know you talk about what should an under sevens training program look like um if the under eight game looks like this as an example now obviously linking it from one age group to another is the intention there to highlight that okay this is the game that they're going to be going into so we need to prepare them for that and that it should be more of a long-term aspect of development Mm -hmm. on it or I mean, is that the perspective that you're coming from? Yeah, I, I think there was quite a specific question at hand in these some of these early discussions with the Premier League. Uh, I think what was noted was that at that time, and this is going it's probably six or eight years ago, in the sense that was a concern that there were very few players who were dribblers in the Premier League mm. because of this tiki-taki football and the, the emphasis on short passing. It seemed that the skill of running with the ball uh, was arguably somewhat disappearing from the game. So I guess the part of the argument, just to couch it in a very specific question here, is yeah. that, OK, well, how much practice goes on that focuses on the development of dribbling skill in practice? And then to what extent is that skill actually applied in the game setting? And uh, I guess that one argument, what you would expect that what you do in practice transfers into the game in an ideal context so clearly if you if you're not spending a lot of time uh, practicing dribbling and running with the balls say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Skills in practice, then it's probably not surprising that you don't see much of it in the context of the game scenario. Uh, sure. So just on that, then you know we, we're talking about you know what the game looks like and what training mm. should look like. So would you say then it's arguably easier uh, to potentially identify and decide what training should look like when you're working maybe in professional development phase with maybe eight, you know eighteen to kind of twenty three year olds because we have a clearer picture of yeah. what they're potentially going to be stepping into. First of all, because they're obviously going, they're going to be probably training full-time and then potentially that will be very much mirrored to the environment they'll be moving into once they become senior players. Um, yeah. So from that perspective, because there's not necessarily a, so say, a, a global platform or, or more elite platform for, shall we say, under nines, under tens and the rest of the mm. age groups, then, difficult to understand and identify exactly what that environment would look like. Yeah, I mean, I mean that makes perfect sense and I guess to some degree aligns with some of the research work that has looked at talent identification. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's much harder to select which six or seven-year-old players are going to become the elite players, future professional players, mm. than it is to select players who are maybe 18 or 19 and which of them might progress to, to first-team status at that age. So, I mean, clearly the game will change 
it has evolved. I mean, even if you look at um, changes in the game over the last few years, I mean, certainly the game's got faster. Uh, players travel longer distances. There's more technical and tactical actions. And there are rule changes. So even this, the way that playing out from the back, for instance, has grown massively with the fact that you now can pass the goalkeeper, can pass the ball inside the penalty area. So, uh, but I think to some degree, the, the fact that the game will change, uh, both technically, tactically, physically, and rules might change. I think that's also very much a strong proponent for having a very flexible and adaptive development process with kids so that, so that you're not developing kids to suit the prevalent model of playing at this time, but that you're actually developing kids who can be adaptive and can play in different types of structures and systems such that they will have those uh, adaptive or expertise skills that they can apply in any context or situation further down the road um, and in fact to some degree I guess it's an interesting wasn't it in the sense that you know when you're ideally what you want is to put into place in a club uh, a structure and a development pathway that allows you to develop these players that are flexible adaptive creative independent problem solvers over time. Uh, but that invariably, if you're coming into a club at the senior management level, then you're probably inheriting a group of players who have not been at the club for a very long period of time. And if those players have been developed through an overly prescriptive, structured approach to coaching, then it becomes very difficult if your philosophy is, is for players who are creative and adaptive to then mould and shape those players into the structure that you need. Um, and, I, and I kind of wonder what, uh, you know, what the clubs are doing in that regard in the sense of whether there, is, there are clubs there and their overriding philosophy um, uh, you know, runs through the club. And if you work on the simple question, well, you know, what's, um, uh, what's a player going to look like in different positions in 10 years' time if the club's aim is to win the Premier League? You know, what's the game going to look like in 10 years' time? And how do we need to de develop players through each stage of development that reflects what potentially the game may look like in the future? Just, you know, just on that, then, you know, how important is it then, you know, just in terms of practice design that we take into consideration? Obviously, you talked that the game might evolve, the roles might change, the way the way things are done, and I guess uh, in terms of trends and patterns of that period of time may develop yeah. further. But in in terms of the development, then how important does a role of the actual games program um, and identifying specific fixtures for the players to play and have a, have a role to play in this process as well then. Yeah. Uh, sorry. I'm not sure I'm, I'm getting your question a little bit, but I, I think a good point that I should mention on this actually is that one, also one of the chapters in the book, um, the best is uh, looks at Barcelona football club. And we have a lot of interesting dialogue there with Isaac Gueros, the director of coaching methodology there. And um, uh, I visited there back in uh, pre-COVID, back in December, 
um, spent a couple of days with Isaac and I, I kind of loved his philosophy on the game, really. We pretty much matched the science quite well in terms of the fact that, um, you know, they are very much into developing uh, players who take responsibility over their an ownership over the learning process and, and they don't spoon feed them and um, they're constantly engaged in problem solving uh, through the use of small sided games. So it's a very, very hands off approach to coaching that they use there. Um, the system is about developing the right environment for players to be able to, to learn independently, albeit the coaches are still overseeing everything and moulding and shaping that environment. But, but, but they give a lot of responsibility to the players, and I think that helps them as a club. And I think they've had that philosophy for quite a number of years now, uh, develop mm. those types of flexible and adaptive players. And, and I think that future-proofs the players to some degree because whatever the game looks like in five or ten years' time, they can do it because they've, um, you know, they're, that's, they're used to problem-solving. And it's just, if the game changes, it's just another novel solution that they have to find. So just on that then, would you would you mind speaking to your thoughts on unopposed practice? Do you feel that it still has a place? And if so, to what extent? Or do you feel that that, to some extent, is, is, is becoming redundant in that respect? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be a fan of unopposed practice, to be honest. I mean, uh, I kind of remember another experience I had. And, and also in the book, there's around this uh, sort of shift in coaching philosophy from hands-on to hands-off is, is a nice little story about Danny Carey, who was um, head coach for the um, uh, GB hockey team that won gold at the 2016 Olympics. And I actually went to see uh, the women's GB hockey team train down in Bisham Abbey uh, before the London Olympics. I think it was about 2010, 2011. So I was taken on at the time as a uh, sort of skill acquisition specialist by um, UK Sport. So I went down, spent the day with Danny, and the first thing I did is I observed practice in the morning. And, um, uh, you know, quite a lot of the practice was unopposed. And uh, Danny and I had a great conversation afterwards about the relative disadvantages of unopposed practice. And, and, and whilst I'm not crediting my input as changing Danny's coaching philosophy. He's obviously approached a lot of other people and reflected and read a lot about the area. But uh, the change in Danny's philosophy is nicely embedded in one of the chapters in the book. But, um, yeah, I mean, the problem with unopposed practice, of course, is that is that what you do in a game is largely, or at least partly, determined by what the opponent does. So um, part of that process of decision perception and decision-making involves not only what your intention is in terms of the type of pass that you'd like to play, but that is constrained very much by what the opponent is doing right there in front of you. So, and again, this is also to some degree part of the problem with drills and grids. I mean, type practices in the sense that I don't, uh, you know, not all drills and grids uh, are probably redundant, but the challenge in those drill and grid brace environments is that the practice has to mimic as closely as possible the demands of the game. So the kind of classical drill-based practices that you might have 
certainly seen 10, 15 years ago where, you know, you've got three 10 by 10 grids and, and one player feeds the ball into the middle and then one player is marked tightly by a defender and he or she has to turn and play the ball to a teammate the other side of the grids. You know, the problem there is that it's an isolated skill and it doesn't happen like that in a real game situation because, you know, you haven't typically already made the decision of where you're going to pass. And there are numerous other players, both teammates and opponents, that are moving around and changing the dynamics of the decision-making scenario scenario perpetually. So therefore, learning how to deal with those dynamics and what decision to make, when to make it at the right time is an important part of the um, of the learning process. Mm. So I guess in terms of designing pra- a practice to kind of suit those needs and support that yeah. development, would you mind just going into you know, some, maybe some actionable steps that coaches can consider in terms of the uh, process of maybe putting together practices and what to consider when um, setting up those types of sessions? I know earlier you touched on about constraining the practice in different ways and you know uh, looking at you know the dimensions of the practice mm. and you know the, the, the length of uh, the time spent on certain activities within it uh, would you mind just going to a few steps around what that could look mm. like mm. I mean I suppose the fundamental question here is is what would a curriculum look like for let's say well it could be a lads and dads club or lads and mums club, or it could be a Premier League club. But I suppose, let's say you're working at the Premier League in an academy, then I suppose what would the curriculum look like for kids at different ages and stages of development? And um, I've never seen a Premier League academy curriculum, actually. I don't, I don't know whether the clubs have curriculum or not. But, um, and I, to be honest, I don't really have a lot of answers to those questions. It's a very difficult question as to how you develop curriculum at each stage of development and it fits in with the previous discussion that we had here about specificity and what an under eight game looks like to un- compared to under nines and under tens i mean um you know the broad guidance i would provide is is the fact that um typically for instance demonstrations are, are less effective than we think that they are by virtue of the fact that they're only really effective very early in learning in providing players with the global movement pattern, for instance, how to pass a ball. But the reality of it is is that these kids have probably seen hundreds of players pass the ball on watching football on television. So you're not actually giving them any new information. And there is actually an argument that you're actually overly constraining their movement pattern by saying to them, this is how you pass the ball and I want you to copy it. Yes. So you're therefore stilting creativity in those players by giving them this model. Just mm. on that then, you know, because it was a question that I, I did have lingering in my head and I was going to come on to is that what are your thoughts on that, that aspect of things in terms of, you know, if more specifically, I'm going to talk about football because it's the sport that I'm working in and uh, probably a lot of the listeners are working in also mm. in that there seems to be an idea or a school of thought that suggests that there's a particular way of doing different actions. So there's a particular way that you might want to finish, a particular mm. way you might want to uh, pass the ball mm. and whatnot. However, mm. you know, I, I've I've come around to this way of thinking. Well, actually, I'm, I'm where I might have been like that in my early days of coaching. Yeah. You know, as time's gone involved, I've kind of really stepped away from providing, I guess, 
that, that specific detail around what it should mm. be and more I'm more geared mm. around now providing this is the outcome I'd like you yeah. to achieve. Yeah. Um, how you go about doing that's totally up to you. If it feels right, run with it. If it doesn't, well, we can assess that together and look at ways in which we can adapt, adjust, or, or mend, amend that uh, the technique that you're currently mm. applying to make yourself feel more comfortable in achieving mm. this outcome. Mm. Well, uh, I suppose what might be useful, although at this point I could do with uh, some kind of board that I could draw some diagrams on but i'll try and explain it as best as i can in the sense that and i look at it as a philosophy or if you like a learning landscape so if you visualize a soccer ball rolling along a surface flat surface and then what we try to do historically with training is to create like a deep and narrow well Whereas, in essence, the ball rolling along the landscape drops into that well. And therefore, there's stability in the fact that the ball's not rolling around. That's stable movement. So philosophically, what that notion conveys is that there is some reassurance in repetition. So therefore, you have a set way of executing a technical skill. And the more you practice that, the narrower that well becomes and the deeper it becomes. Um, just, yeah, just on that, though, Mark. You know, you talking about repetition. You know, this is another thing. I've, I, I'm a bit conflicted on that. I, I, my thing is, yes, it repetition in terms of a, a passage yeah. of play or a particular aspect of uh, yeah. a particular action that or that you're looking for. However, really, because there's such such fine variables in, uh, to consider within all these uh, different mm. movements. Is there really any real No, and, and I think that was the point I was coming on to. So if you, if you look at that yeah. analogy with the, the narrow, deep landscape for the marble or the rolling ball as the traditional view of coaching, where notionally skill lear- learning was all about reducing variability. I mean, I think the scientific evidence over the last couple of decades has actually demonstrated quite nicely that the variability is actually functional. Uh, and it's important to performance in that that variability allows people to modify and adapt um, skills to deal with the constraints of the environment that they're actually faced with. So if you come back to my landscape analogy again, and you've still got this ball rolling in from the left-hand side here. So this well is not actually narrow and deep, but it's actually quite wide and quite shallow. So if you imagine the ball there, for it doesn't then sit in this deep landscape. It rolls about a bit, okay, like a marble in a, in a cereal bowl. Okay? And that's what performance is like because the, the, the width and depth of that well needs to reflect the variability that you see during competition and match play because ultimately, uh, you know, uh, football is... is very different to gymnastics. In gymnastics, you recreate fixed movement patterns. In football, you apply broad technical skills, tactical skills in a variety of different ways. So to some degree, therefore, learning environments, practice environments need to recreate that variability um, by pushing learners into practicing skills in the very broad range of situations and conditions that they would see during competition and match play. Does that make sense? 
hard to hard to do that without yeah, definitely. having a pen and a piece of paper in front of me. But uh, I don't know whether people got that analogy or not. But I, I think that's what I mean philosophically. So therefore, if you accept the fact that variability is a key component of performance, then how do we create practice situations that, yes, have specificity and some element of reproducibility to them, but at the same time also encourage uh, this functional variability, uh, which seems to be mm. crucial to performance at the highest level. Definitely, and just to kind of, kind of delve deeper into that and something that you kind of touched on earlier around uh, the unopposed and the opposed stuff, I think, is, is it fair to say that, that we, yeah. we might better off, better off be starting with uh, what I'd probably consider as a semi-opposed practice in, in, in all contexts where there is some sort of inf- interference yeah. there? Um, in, a, in a lot of my practices where I feel I have to maybe go back to, you know, quote unquote, the basics and really, especially with younger players, when you're looking at, you know, being able to master the ball yeah. and stuff like that. I try and encourage situations where you've got uh, not not cones, not uh, mannequins, but players where possible, even if they're acting in a uh, constrained yeah. manner. So they might be able to operate within a certain area and not be fully opposed in that, in yeah. that respect, just to kind of create some sort of, uh, game-like, realistic visual references for the players to kind of work from, if that makes sense. Uh, no, and absolutely. And again, that's the challenge for the coach, isn't it? And to some degree, if you recall the, the drill I described five, ten minutes ago around sort of three ten-by-ten ten grids and one player playing it from mm. one side into the middle, the other has to turn and play it to the other end. That, I guess, is an analogy for the deep and narrow well and the landscape scenario. Um, mm. And then the question is, well, if you want to develop those skills in players then can you develop some training environments that fit this, this shallow uh, but wider landscape with the marble rolling around in the cereal bowl, so to speak. But then oh, clearly what you have is, is there's, a, there's a huge continuum there, though, isn't it? And this is the challenge for the coach. Whilst my role as a scientist is to convey the principle that you're better off designing practice sessions that have this functional variability in them, uh, rather than these rigid, structured, drill, grid-based sessions at the other end of the continuum, you have a huge amount of different shades of grey in the middle, though, in terms of how you go about doing that. Um, and then, clearly, the challenge for the, for the coach, again, is that the closer you probably get to this shallow and, and wide landscape, which reflects competition, then the poorer performance becomes in practice, which then makes you start to worry, oh, is this going how I want it to go? Are the players learning everything? So this differentiation between performance and learning comes in then. So ultimately, there's a huge amount of craft knowledge from the coach that goes into the process of making these decisions about you know, the level of specificity and challenge of the practice and at what point do you progress and at what point do you take a step backwards? Um, the only thing I would probably say is one broad guideline is that historically, uh, I think pro- coaches have been too conservative, probably, in, in creating too many practice sessions that are towards the, um, the landscape, which is narrow and deep. Uh, as opposed to uh, the other end of the continuum, if that makes sense. Mm. No, I certainly take on that point. I think one of the things that I've kind of tried to do within my my own work is that I try and steer away from having a large range of practices, but much more having a work around 
practices which are maybe multifunctional and dynamic in their in their in their mm. purpose and um, I guess potential outcomes that you can kind of focus on within it. So therefore, mm. in terms of the practice itself, the players become you know familiar with the practices. I'm not finding myself having to re-explain practices mm. too often. More shifting the spotlight to another area within the session. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Actually, look, 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 let, let me raise uh, what I think is a is a very important point here. I guess in in the sense that. Um, Again, if you go back to this uh, continuum of um, structured, focused practice, narrow, deep well, on one end of the continuum and this shallower, wider well uh, landscape, learning landscape at the other end of the continuum. I mean, historically, I guess the view would be that when you're working with young kids, then you start on uh, the left-hand side of the continuum, that is the, the deep and narrow end of the well. And then as the kids develop, then you progress slowly towards these dynamic, uh, more realistic practice conditions that are more challenging and more complex. Um, and maybe if you were having a conservative view of the skill learning process, what you might say, well, that seems logical, but maybe can we move along that continuum more quickly? Mm. Whereas, of course, you could take a very radical view and say, well, well, why do we need these structured, rigid training sessions that focus on this left-hand side of the continuum at all? And, uh, you know, why can't we always develop uh, small-sided games, match-related scenarios that better reflect the demands of competition? And, of course, there's a huge amount of evidence from other countries, like um, in Brazil, for instance, there's relatively little structured coaching before the age of 12. So most of their exposure to football at a very young age comes through street football, beach football and futsal. And mostly it's without coaches, without parents being present. So it is this dynamic side of the environment a little bit. And a few years ago, actually, we did collect some data on this. It's probably about eight to ten years ago now where we um, we went and video filmed 80-odd um, coaching sessions. Uh, a third of them roughly were... Um, with Premier League Academy coaches. I think they were all B or A licensed coaches. Uh, must have been A licensed coaches, sorry, at that stage. Uh, championship teams, you know, centres of excellence. And then the final third was local um, mums and, and dads clubs. They had B licensed coaches. So we had A and B licensed coaches, about 80 of them. And we recorded training sessions and just coded the time that they spent engaging in different types of activities. And essentially what we found was that um, 65% of the training session was taken up by activities that we had termed as training form. So in other words, they were either uh, physiological work, uh, strength conditioning type work. They were either unopposed technical practice or they were very structured and rigid drill-based scenarios. Whereas only 35% of practice time uh, was what we termed playing form. Uh, um, that is, we suggested that they reflected the demands of competition, so small-sided games, conditioned games, match play. And interestingly, we had, not only did we have the three skill groups, but we also had three age groups, under nines, under 13, and under 16. And there were very few differences, either across skill groupings or across age groups in the sense that it seemed to me that coaches had this structured way of developing and delivering a training session. It didn't change a great deal. 
So we didn't really see this conservative progression from the left-hand side to the right-hand side of the continuum. Uh, and we certainly didn't see, you know, a lot of activity in the right side of the continuum. That is sort of dynamic open play scenarios. Now, granted, I think the FA did take notice of that data. And uh, my understanding is that the FA have collected similar data uh, fairly recently, maybe a few years back. <clears throat> I don't think it's been published to my knowledge and I've not actually seen it myself. But my understanding is there has been a shift there now where um, coaches are spending more time in what we term playing form activity. So there's been a little bit of a de-emphasis of investing time in unopposed technical practices or in overly structured and rigid drill and grid-based practices. But, you know, I'm sure there are, and I don't think those problems are unique to the FA, for instance. You know, I'm sure that uh, there are different types of coaching philosophies and different problems that exist across coaching organisations across the world. I know certainly I've had similar conversations with Football Federation Australia. And they've shifted their, their training uh, philosophy over the last decade. And uh, with US soccer, I mean, I think they've made good inroads again in terms of moving towards more games-related training approaches. But, um, but you know, the debate is still out there and, and I think um, it, it continues to be a fascinating and interesting topic. So just, Mark, you know, as we start mm -hmm. to wind down then, you know, what would be one key message that you'd, you'd ask or that you'd encourage coaches to take on board from... Uh, the discussion that we've had today or, or is there anything beyond that? Just one other point and then I'll answer your question coming back to that data that we did the video-based analysis is we also had a lapel microphone by the way that um, uh, where we recorded coach behaviours and um, there were very few periods of silence and you know verbal instruction and continual encouragement was the continual dialogue that um, overrun these practice activities. So I suppose maybe the message, in answer to your specific question, the message I'd like to put out there is two messages, really, in the sense of firstly to focus as best as you can on, on ensuring that your practice environments look like the game. Uh, and that, as I said, isn't necessarily just technically and tactically, but also physically. And emotionally, because we know that um, stress in all its various guises, whether it's fatigue, workload, anxiety, emotions, impact the way that we learn and perform movement skills. So the closer that the practice sessions get to look like the game and feel like the game, then the more likely that these necessary challenge points will occur and that these players will begin to make the adaptations that are needed. And then the second point is, is, is maybe to hold back in many ways and, and maybe to try and be patient in the sense that, you know, at the moment where you think that you need to provide some instruction or feedback or the moment where you think you might need to go backwards and put more structure uh, into this kind of training environment that maybe you should think twice and let it let practice evolve and intervene at a later time uh, so therefore that you you are 
trying to give the players as much opportunity as possible to to solve problems independently. So maybe in a, in a nutshell, it's try and be a little bit more hands-off in the learning process. And although that there is some element of nervousness perhaps in going down that route, it may well be that in the long term, it may have a lot of benefits in developing more adaptive and creative players. Brilliant. And Mark, you know, just on a final note, obviously you touched there, you know, you've got your, your book. Um, would you mind just maybe going into a bit more detail around, you know, what the book covers and where they can, where the listeners could potentially get a Yeah, it's, uh, it's um, the book's called The Best, How Elite Athletes Are Made. Um, it's available via Amazon. And I think it's certainly in Waterstones, Stones, if not uh, some of the other bookshops, but it's available online. Um, uh, the book actually looks across a range of sports, but football, you know, is, is probably the sport that is considered in most detail. The split is actually, the book is actually in three sections. Uh, in the first section, we look at um, the role of environmental issues in the development of expertise. So we look at, for instance, the importance of um, siblings, parents, and significant others in the development of elite athletes. We look at the importance of location and where you're born and what impact that has on your chance of becoming an elite athlete. Um, we then look at the relative age effect and the seasonal birth date bias and uh, look at some of the problems and some of the potential solutions to that issue. We, uh, we look at importance of street sport. There's a lot of um, interesting information from the, the streets of Paris and parts of Brazil around the importance of street football in the development of creative players. Um, and then there's a chapter in on talent, well, chapter on talent identification and development, truly trying to answer the question of are there any early predictors of talent? Uh, the next one is on pathways to excellence in the sense that it looks at the relative importance of specialization versus diversification in the path to excellence. In the second section, we sort of focus more so on some of the adaptations that occur as a result of prolonged engagement in sport. So we look at things like the development of game intelligence, um, uh, you know, some of the psychological characteristics that underpin greatness. What are they? How do we develop them? Uh, how do we avoid choking in sport? Uh, there's a chapter in there on how to win a penalty shootout. We've actually given that um, a whole chapter. It's quite an interesting one in terms of, uh, you know, the kinds of strategies that teams can use to increase the chances of success at penalty shootouts. And, uh, and then the final section, we, we focus more so on coaching. And there's a chapter on deliberate practice. As I said in this talk, there's a, a chapter about the benefits of hands-on versus hands-off approaches to instruction. And uh, there's a chapter on the role of technology, such as virtual reality, neuroscience, uh, in, in the development of elite athletes. So it's, it's the book, I suppose, it kind of brings together some of the environmental issues, uh, including effective coaching, practice and instruction that are important in the development of elite athletes. Uh, and whilst it doesn't dismiss the importance of genetics in the path to greatness, and clearly it's got to be some balance between nature and nurture, 
in becoming an elite player. I think what the book does, it focuses more so around the things that we can control as coaches and those involved in the player development pathways around issues of identifying, selecting and developing players uh, to become um, future elite athletes in the sport. It's, um, uh, for me, uh, what I like about it uh, uh, is that it's, it's a nice balance between um, interviews with, uh, with top players, uh, which Tim was, was very fortunate to get access to a lot of very top athletes, uh, plus merged with the science. And, and, and I hope that we've got the balance right there in that the book is both informative and entertaining and interesting. Uh, and for example, we've got interviews with Jamie Carragher around the topic of game intelligence and reading the, the game. Um, there's a nice interview with Marcus Rashford about um, uh, strategies at penalty kicks. Uh, and there are a number of other players. There's nice stuff around Harry Kane and uh, the relative age effect. So yeah, it's it's a it's a good general read, I think, for for coaches, those involved in high performance sport, but also for um, parents and uh, uh, and those who are working at grassroots football. I think there should hopefully be something of interest in there to everybody. Fantastic. And just on a final note, then, Mark, you know, as we start to close up, is there anywhere where the listeners could potentially get in touch with you if they had any questions either around the things that we've discussed in this conversation or anything beyond? Yeah, that? yeah, by all means. I mean, uh, people are welcome to drop me an email if they have a question or even a comment. Uh, I always respond. And uh, it's mark.williams at um, health dot utah dot edu that's mark dot williams at health dot utah dot edu i also have a website www mark williams sports science dot com and um, i'm actually in the uk at the moment so uh, i'm on your timeline as you know i've been uh, here for quite a few months actually during lockdown so um and certainly don't see me returning to the states in the near future the way things are at the moment. But um, yeah, thanks very much for the invite onto the pod. I hope your listeners find it of interest, but by all means, if there's any further follow-ups, you're welcome to reach out. Well, there you have it, guys. You've been listening to another edition of the Coaches Network How-To Series, where we discuss a range of topics and with the help of our guests, break down some action or how-to steps for you to reach your full potential. Now, I've got no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again, guys. You know, your support is massively appreciated. So thanks again for everyone that's been tuning in and please do get in touch with us and today's guest to let us know where you're listening from, to share your thoughts, your views and your key takeaways from today's show. Along with any suggestions for guests you'd like to see on the show and any topics you'd like to hear discussed, ultimately, guys, the show is about you guys. So let us know what you're interested in, who you're interested in listening from, so get us and get in touch. And on that note, guys, you can get in touch on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. But please do not forget to use the hashtag The Coaches Network. That was the hashtag The Coaches Network. We need as much support we can get to keep this great content coming out to you. Now, lastly, guys, I just want to say keep an eye out for our socials on the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with our panel. Until next time, guys, take care and have a great day. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.